Romans, Romans 12. We're going to be moving forward in here. So far, we've learned just from the first two, vo- first two verses is that the Christian life is all about using our minds, our hearts, and our bodies to express the worth of God and all that He is to us in Christ. Doing that is how our lives become an act of worship to God. And in order to be able to do that, we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then last week, we looked at the goal of the renewed mind, which is to be able to discern the will of God. We want to be able to take God's will that He has revealed in the Bible and apply it to situations and decisions that we face every day to the point where it becomes just the natural spillover of our spontaneous attitude and actions. Being able to do that requires not a new list of behaviors, but a new mind and a new heart. Christian living is not willpower religion. Should be some amens in there. Christian living is not willpower religion, and if that's what you've made it into, like you're just trying as hard as you can with all your effort, then you are not living the Christian life the way that God designed you to live it. It should be the overflow of a new mind and a new heart that has been created by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you produce on your own. Now, everything I've just said pretty much summarizes the first two verses of Romans 12. Everything else in the rest of the chapter is going to be a description of the way that the new heart and mind thinks and acts. Today, we focus on what it does in verse 3. So if you would stand with me, let's stand together in honor of God's word and read what Paul says in verse 3. It says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your word is good and true, and just in this one verse, God, there is so much um, wisdom and truth and just treasure in this. And so I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see this, to see Jesus for who he truly is that we may be transformed. And God, I pray again that, Lord, what we do here within these last moments that we have together would not just be some mundane routine, that we won't just be doing what we're doing just because it's what we do on Sundays. But God, I pray that your presence will be manifest here among us so strong that we will leave here knowing that we had an encounter with the creator of the universe that we beheld with our eyes the King of kings in ways that we never have before, and we would leave here different than we were when we came in. God, if that doesn't happen, then I think we've just wasted our time. So God, let your will be done in this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, although verse 2 calls for us to have a renewed mind, it doesn't tell us how the renewed mind should think. It just tells us what the goal of the renewed mind is, which is to be able to discern the will of God. But now in verse 3, he's going to tell us how it, how it thinks. And it's pretty striking how he does this. If you notice, I mean, the, the three times he mentions the word think. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to 
think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And of all, out of all the things that Paul could have said about human thinking, he chose this one thing here above all others, which should tell us something, because we know that the human mind can be an awfully terrible thing. It is capable of some pretty wicked thoughts. It's capable of some very lustful thoughts, some corrupt thoughts, deceptive thoughts, even criminal thoughts. But the one thing that Paul mentions above all those other wicked thoughts that our human mind is capable of, he starts off and he chooses the issue of pride. He says something negative and something positive like he did in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, don't be conformed to this world, the negative, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the positive. And here it's don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, the negative, but think so as to have sound judgment, the positive. He is now getting more specific in describing how the Christian mind does not conform to the world around it. And the first thing that he addresses is pride. And I think he deals with this first, not because it's the most important thing that the mind does, but because it is by far the most dangerous. How we think about ourselves will not save us, but it can destroy us. Absolutely. Inflated views of ourselves is dangerous to the soul. And the issue of pride in the place of self over God is the deepest human problem in all of the universe. It is that problem that caused the fall of Satan from heaven. And it is that problem that caused the fall of mankind from the garden. Out of fellowship and relationship with God. Back in Romans 8, 7, Paul described this fundamental problem we all have when he said that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is incapable of doing so. It is not even able to do it. This is the fundamental problem with your mind and mine. It is naturally bent toward complete insubordination to God. Instead of acknowledging Him as the sum of all that is good and right and lovely and satisfying and worthy of glory, the human mind thinks of itself more highly than it ought to think. And here in America in particular, the message of the world around us speaks directly to that. To an advertising agency, pride of the human mind isn't dangerous, it's very profitable. I mean, just think of how many advertising slogans and messages exploit this bent in us. Burger King, have it your way. McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Reebok, I am what I am. And then L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Every one of those messages, and they connect with us. And so we go buy all these products because it triggers something. It triggers that, that demonic bent of human pride that our minds are prone, naturally prone to thinking. I'll tell you what, we bought into it so much that nowadays it, it, it affects our parenting. 
in the way we're raising our kids. You've heard me now ex- speak extensively on the fact that I believe we are now raising the most narcissistic generation that has ever been. More self-centered than any of them have ever been before with our, our, our disgusting overprotection of their hurt feelings and this everyone gets a trophy mentality. I'm telling you right now, advertisers, educators, coaches, pastors, and parents are going to have to give an account one day for how they exploited this destructive bent of the human mind towards pride. So Paul makes the first task of the renewed Christian mind the obliteration of pride and the cultivation of humility. First point in your notes. What's new about the renewed mind? Pride is put to death. Humility begins to grow. And then Paul tells us how to do that in the last part of the verse. He says, but to think, talking about thinking of yourselves, so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And In other words, measure the way that you see yourself by the measure of your faith. Well, faith in what? Well, in the point of this whole letter, by your faith in Jesus Christ. So in essence, he's saying measure the way that you see yourself by the way that you see Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is that the renewed mind sees and embraces Jesus, not ourselves, as the supreme truth and treasure of the universe. What Paul is doing is turning self-exaltation completely upside down. And he's saying, do you want to have significance? Then look to Jesus as the one who is infinitely significant. Do you want to have value? Then look to Jesus as infinitely valuable. Do you want to have esteem? Then look to Jesus as the one who is worthy of infinite esteem. But make no mistake here, I'm not echoing the Christian psychobabble that is so popular in the American church today that says, if you want to have significance for yourself, then look to Jesus as a means for you to gain significance. Or look to Jesus as a means for you to to have this self-worth and and self-value. I'm not saying that the renewed mind looks to Jesus as a means to gain these things for ourself. What I am saying is that you were made to embrace Him as significant and worthy of esteem and valuable. That is what the renewed mind loves to do. Measuring the way that you see yourself by the way that you see Jesus really means this. And it's the next point in your notes. If Jesus is more to you, you are more. If Jesus is less to you, you are less. Those who struggle with self-esteem issues have a low self-esteem and and struggle with self-loathing and not liking themselves and all that. The truth is, I mean, if you get right down to it, they don't think very much of Jesus. They don't think very highly of him because if they did, then their fixation on themselves would be drowned out by their amazement of him. 
Next point, the measure of you rises and falls on your measure of him. Your value of Jesus is the value you have. Your esteem of him is the esteem you have. Your treasuring him is the treasure that you have. And again, I'm not saying that if you think better of Jesus, you're going to think better of you in some prideful way. I'm saying that the better that you think of Jesus, the more that you think of him, the less you're going to think of you, not in a negative way, but in a humble way. You'll be more confident because your confidence is in him. You won't be concerned about what everybody else thinks about you because you know what he thinks about you. The way to overcome self, a low self-esteem, I want you all to listen to me because we have gotten this wrong in trying to correct this in people for so long. The way for someone to overcome a low self-esteem is not being convinced of how great they are, but being able to see how great Jesus is. That's how you overcome a low self-esteem. If you want to think of yourself with sound judgment, measure yourself by your faith, the way that you see, the way that you believe in Jesus and who he is. Okay, now answer this question. Does everyone have the same measure of faith? No, they don't. Not everyone sees Jesus the same. Not everyone has the same amount of faith. Some have more, some have less. So what is the determining factor in that? Well, most people are probably going to say that we are. Say the amount of work that you put into getting more faith is going to determine how much faith you have. But I'm going to say it once again. It's not about you. It's not Look at the end of verse 3 again and tell me what the determining factor is and what level of faith you have. It says, God has allotted each a measure of faith. The determining factor in how much faith you have, what level of faith you are at, is not you, it's God. By God's grace, he gives you faith. And so the next point, the measure of faith that you have is a gift of God. Why is that? Why does God give us a certain measure of faith instead of requiring us to do something in order to increase our faith? Well, the answer is so so that we don't disobey Romans 12, 3 and think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I mean, if our measure of faith is God's doing, then there is nothing that we can then boast in or pat ourselves on the back for achieving in our own strength and wisdom. Because it's not our doing, it's His. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, talking about the faith, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So why? So that no one may boast. Now, there are a number of objections that people will usually raise about this. Of believing that your faith is all God's doing and, and not yours. And probably the main argument that they have is that they'll say that believing that is going to lead to a fatalistic mentality. And a passive lifestyle. Fatalistic meaning 
You know, you think, well, if God's going to do it all, then it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, it doesn't matter what I do. I can just do whatever I want to. If it's ultimately up to God and he's the determining factor in all this, then it doesn't matter. They'll say that if God gives us the faith, then fighting the good fight of faith that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 6.12 is pointless. I mean, what's the use in fighting for our faith if, if it's all determined by God anyway and it's not up to us? The answer to that objection is this. The fact that God is sovereign and he is the one who raises the dead in their sins to life and he is the one who turns the backslider back around again and he is the one who gives each person a certain measure of faith that doesn't make the good fight of faith pointless, it makes it possible. So the next point, God's sovereignty doesn't make what we do pointless it absolutely makes it possible. Because without him doing anything in you, you wouldn't be able to do anything at all. I'll show you what I mean in a couple texts. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God being the one working in us does not make working out our salvation pointless, it makes it possible. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. God's sovereign grace didn't make Paul's labor pointless, it made it possible. The objection that people will raise to it being all God who gives us faith, I mean, to think that it's not and it all depends on us, you have to then uh, assume that every one of us starts from some kind of neutral level and then we are able to determine whether we're going to believe or not believe and determine how we're going to conjure up more faith along the way. But according to the Bible, we don't all start from a place of neutrality. We all start from a place of absolute depravity. We are spiritually dead with eyes that are blind to God's truth, ears that are deaf to his call, and a heart that is hardened to his glory. And we are completely and utterly helpless to do anything about it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. God has to be the one to open our eyes to see. He has to be the one to soften our heart to believe. He has to be the one to raise us from the dead. If you have the slightest ounce of saving faith, it's because of what God in his grace and mercy has done for you. What does that do? I don't know about you, but that makes me want to praise him, makes me want to thank him, makes me want to have a heart of gratitude. My gosh, if he has done that, makes my life just want to be lived as an act of worship to him. And for those of us who know just how fragile and how unfaithful and how unreliable our human will is, it is a great comfort to know 
that God has promised to sustain our faith and not leave it ultimately up to us. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not might perfect it, not will perfect it. If you work real hard and meet certain criteria, will perfect it. He will. That is a promise in his word that you can stand on. So just as the disciples asked Jesus, we can ask him to increase our faith. And Jesus isn't going to hear that request and go, no, that's not my work, that's yours. And so it's not pointless then to read and, and study your Bible. It's not pointless to spend time in prayer or to sit under solid preaching or to engage in relationships with other believers on a different level because when you do that you are partnering with the Holy Spirit and joining him in the work that is all his of increasing your faith and that's a good thing about God he doesn't just sit back and go you know what I got this you just don't worry about life I'll take care of it for you you know, you just do whatever you want to, and I'll, I'll increase your faith. That's not the approach that God takes. Many of you know that we live on a small farm that you're all going to be able to come out and, and see next week. And we grow stuff there. We grow animals. We grow food. Uh, spent all day yesterday involved in the thing that we seem to grow the most around there, which is weeds. Just pulling them all day long. When you grow things, there is a lot of work that's required in that, a lot of maintenance involved. And the truth is, I'm capable of doing all the work around there myself. But I don't. I try and include my kids in it as much as possible. And honestly, a lot of times it would be a whole lot easier if I did just do it myself. But I make a point to include them with me, not just because I want to instill in them a good work ethic. It's because I want to develop a relationship with my children. And working together is one way for us to do that. I mean, there have been some great conversations between me and my kids just working on the farm. And they'll open up and talk about things sometimes while we're doing that in ways that they want when we're just sitting around the house. And so even though I'm fully capable of doing the work myself, and a lot of times even when they're with me, it ends up that I have done all the work myself. But they're, they're, they're good at that. But that's not the point. The work isn't the point. The point is that I want them to be with me. I want to build a relationship with my kids. And working together is one of the ways that we do that. So the same is true for God. He goes, hey, son, hey, daughter, why don't you come over here and join me in the work that I'm doing to increase your faith? Let's spend some time together and work in this thing together. I want you to experience the joy of what I am doing in you. Let's do it together. God is the ultimate and decisive worker in our spiritual life. But he has developed a means for us to be able to join him in that. Building our relationship with him in that. 
And the means that he has developed for us to do that is things like reading the Bible and spending time in prayer and relationships with other believers. I'm telling you, it is so helpful and so precious to know this. But then there's another question that some may have about this, and that is why does God ordain that some have different levels of faith than others when he has revealed in his word that he wants us all to be strong in our faith, that he wants us all to have lots of it. Well, the answer really goes back to what God began highlighting a lot at the beginning of the year for our church, which is relationships. Christ is glorified in the way that his body, the church, works together and relates to one another. Up ahead in Romans 15, verse 5 and 6, Paul says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently God knows that a body of believers with different gifts and different levels of faith will bring him more glory when they live in harmony without pride in those who have greater faith and without despair in those who have less faith. There is more glory in him for him in that than there would be if all of us just had the same level of faith. Look at this, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. None of that would be possible if we all were at the same level of faith. And so until Jesus returns, God has ordained it that some will have different levels of faith than others. He gives some more faith and then reminds them that they have it, not because of them, but because of him, so that they will then be humbled and in their humility help out those who have less faith. And he gives some less faith so that they will be dependent on the rest of the body and by doing so be ultimately dependent on him. And so they can experience the joy of joining with him in growing their faith. Last point. God is glorified in the diversity of our different levels of faith. Okay, so what's the takeaway from Romans 12, 3? Does anyone remember, it's been a while since I've mentioned it, but remember the three questions I say that we should always ask whenever we read any scripture in the Bible. The first question is, what does this tell me about Jesus? The second one is, what do I need to repent of? And the third one, what do I need to believe? Now, the Holy Spirit may lead each of us to to different answers to those questions. And what you answer today, if several months from now you come back and read this verse again, he may give you a different answer to those questions. But I'll tell you what what I see in this. What this tells me about Jesus jumped out to me is that my identity is found solely in him. I knew that. But I tell you, I needed to be reminded of that. 
My identity is found solely in him, and what I need to repent of is trying to find my identity in things other than him, whether it be my job or my achievements or my children. None of that is me. My identity is in him. The way I see myself has everything to do with him. Some of us probably need to repent of just thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I'm going to tell you what, that phrase right there, those who think of themselves more highly than they ought to think, is not limited. That does not mean just those who think better of themselves than they actually are. It also includes those who are hung up on their low self-esteem. Because the truth is, their eyes, even in that situation, is on self. And so they're thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And they need to get their eyes off of them and onto Jesus. What do I need to believe? I need to see and believe Jesus for who he really is. I need to believe that God is the one who is increasing my faith and trust him in that and join him in that in the opportunities that he has presented to me answering those three questions is how the word of God begins to transform us and renew our minds we're not going to have a renewed mind through osmosis and just blazing through scriptures as fast as we can so we can put a sticker on a chart that says we read the bible you got to be intentional about it and sit down and, and think, what is this saying to you? And answering these questions is a way to let it begin to, to work, get inside, and just start working in you. Next week, we're going to move a little faster. I know that we've kind of been parked on just a couple verses here for a while, but we're going to move through several verses next time and see how our different levels of faith enable us to work together the way that God intended for us to. And then we're going to see how a renewed mind affects our behavior because it has everything to do with that. Let's pray. God, I know that you are here in this place. I know that you have spoken to us through your word corporately, and I know that you are speaking to certain people in here individually. Lord, I pray that everyone would be able to answer those questions about this verse. What does this tell them about you? I pray that they'd be able to see you in ways that they haven't before or in ways that they may have forgotten about and needed to be reminded about. Lord, I pray that you would open someone's eyes to the things that they need to repent of. Let them know that repentance is not a shameful thing. It is a, it is a celebratory thing because it marks something significant that you are doing in us. Lord, what you want us to believe about this, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts that we would be able to do that. Lord, what we truly believe affects 
everything in our life. So God, I pray that we would walk out of here today believing something we may not have believed before or having more conviction about a, a belief that we have had. Holy Spirit, I've done all that I can do. So Lord, I'm trusting you to get inside, to work in our hearts and in our minds, to do what only you can do. I'm just going to trust you with that. I thank you that you love us the way that you do. I thank you that you have provided a way for us to join you in your work because you love us because you want to build a relationship with us. Thank you for your grace and mercy, God. I'm amazed by it every time I read something else about it. I pray that we all would, God, see you for who you really are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.